Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is part 54 in the series, Contending for the Faith. This is the morning service of Sunday the 13th of March, 2011, entitled, God the Holy Spirit, Part 16. And the Bible reading is taken from Ephesians, Chapter 4, Verses 1 to 16. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. If you'd like to be opening your Bibles to Ephesians, Chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, we'll be taking our scripture reading from there just in a moment. We return to our series this morning that we left back before Christmas, and with the Christmas season and New Year's and a few things that I felt the Lord would have us deal with prior to the conference to come back. Now, I guess the thing is, I kind of scratched my head and say, okay, now how do we do this? There's certainly not time to say a whole lot about where we've come to to get to here. And if you see that this morning, that's, that's just what we've covered on the Holy Spirit so far. And so there's not a lot of reviewing. Let me encourage you, as we began this series a year and a half ago or something like that, that uh, we began with the book of Jude with the thought of contending for the faith. And, uh, and of course, we said there, I mean, how many of you remember that we had a fight to be fought for a faith in its fullness on a foundation that's firm against a foe that's a fraud? And that's where we began. And there is a real battle. And, of course, we looked at a number of things concerning that contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints And then we begin to say, okay, well, what is it that we're contending for? Uh, What is it that we should be willing to literally stand and fight for and never compromise under any circumstances? Well, in simple form, we should never compromise anything that's in the Word of God. (laughs) If God said it, that should be final for us. We began looking, and we're really looking at a couple of aspects. One, the foundations of the faith, the faith that was once for all delivered. Speaking of all the revealed revelation that we have that God has given to us that makes up that faith, which we call Christianity. Then also the foundational things that we as a fellowship base our faith where we stand as a local church upon. We've been looking at these things, and during that we have looked, of course, at the basis of our faith, which is the inspired Word of God, the eternal existence of a triune God. We looked at a number of sermons on Jesus Christ our Lord, looking at His virgin birth, His vicarious death, His victorious resurrection, and we spent a good bit of time on His visible return. We looked at the thought of nothing but the blood. Uh, There is absolutely nothing in all the world that can take the place of the blood. We looked at the truth about Satan, and we've been doing and looking at a number of sermons on the Holy Spirit. We began by looking at the, uh, the promise that the Lord Jesus Christ himself gave to us before he left this world. He was the one that promised to send the Holy Spirit. We move from that to looking at the person or the personality of the Holy Spirit, 
He's not to be treated as some, uh, uh, some force, some power, uh, something that we can uh, have bits and parts of, but he is a person just as much a part of the Trinity of our triune God as the Father and the Son. And then we look very importantly next at the purpose. Jesus Christ himself told us why that he was sending the Holy Spirit. We saw that he sent it for the transferring of Christ's work. The biggest thing is that Christ's work could continue to be carried on on this earth through you and I. And, of course, that was going to take place by taking up tenancy in the believer to live and dwell within each and every one of us. He came for the teaching of God's Word, for the testifying of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the transforming of sinners, for the transmitting of all truth, the Bible tells us, and always targeting the glory of Jesus Christ and not his own. And then we begin to look at the practice of the Holy Spirit. First of all, we looked at a practice that relates to conversion, which is, of course, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we looked at a number of things, and then we looked at a practice that relates to control, which is the filling of the Holy Spirit. And we, again, covered quite a bit of time in, in, in looking at uh, the various things concerning the, the, the filling of the Holy Spirit. And of course, then as we, as we began to move on for that, we began to, to look at the fruit of the Spirit and uh, what that, uh, uh, as we looked at the, uh, uh, the, the power, the uh, miraculous power uh, that is ours through the, uh, uh, through the Holy Spirit, um, the presentation, what it does in our lives, the boldness that it should bring to our, our witness, how it should affect our praise, our worship, our thanksgiving, our submissiveness. And of course, as we looked at all the fruits of the Spirit, then we moved to the gifts of the Spirit, which is where we have spent some time, and it's where we come back to now as we look here into the, uh, to the book of Ephesians. Now, as we began with the gift of the Spirit, we, we took some looking at uh, at 1 Corinthians chapters uh, 12 to 14, uh, we tried to define what the, uh, uh, what the gifts are. Uh, we looked at the distribution of those gifts, how that they are uh, given to each and every. Uh, some gifts are given to all people. Uh, some are given to the believers as a whole. And some are given to the church. Uh, and as we looked at those, we, uh, we talked at all of them. Uh, they're always distributed not for our own personal selfish reasons, but for the good of the whole body. And, uh, and as we pick back up this morning, of course, so many things that we have, uh, have covered there, uh, we began to, to look in, in Ephesians chapter 4, and I'd like to, uh, uh, to read that passage once again uh, this morning. And as we read that, then uh, uh, we want to pick back up where that we, uh, uh, where that we left off Last, in speaking of these gifts that are given to the body as a whole, uh, both for your good as an individual believer and for the good of the body. Now, in Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to begin reading in verse 1 and read down through verse 16. And I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning as we begin with Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, 
that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Verse 11 says, And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in, unto him in all things which is the head, even Christ, for whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Father, we thank you so much. Lord, as we have the privilege to look into your word once again this morning, thank you for each one that you've made possible for them to be able to be here gathered together in your house this day. And Father, now this one that we have been speaking of, the Holy Spirit himself, Lord, it's certainly his presence that we need and desire here this morning. We know that he lives and dwells within us, but we know that he that is able to take these words and make them alive to our hearts and not just words upon our ears. Lord, you know the heart of each individual. We pray that you would speak that to us this morning that we need to hear. You know the saved. You know the lost. You know exactly what needs to take place in each of our hearts. And for that, we pray and pray that you would receive all the glory and honor for it. For it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen and amen. So as we begin looking at these, this passage in Ephesians chapter 4, we've talked about these gifts that are given by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and that they were given. The Bible teaches us here that the body, his body, might be able to be fitly joined together, that it might be able as a whole to accomplish that with him alone serving as our head. 
we saw that he has given these gifts to the church, to the body of Christ. We find that in some instances we've seen where that he has given gifts to men for the use of the whole body. Here he gives these gifts to the body as a whole. Yes, still for the body, but that you remember he doesn't give you a gift to bless yourself but he does give gifts to the body as a whole to accomplish things in your life. We covered here the first two gifts that he mentions here in verse 11. We saw how that he gave to some apostles. We talked about what those apostles were and who they were. And then that he gave some prophets, and we talked about what a prophet was and what that gift is. And so today we move on to this third gift here in our reading. It says in verse 11, and he gave some apostles and some prophets, and then he says, and some evangelist. To some, he gave evangelist. What is an evangelist? Well, let me say, without trying to be too cheeky, he's not talking about that guy in the white suit and the white hat and the cowboy boots that's more concerned about how much money that you're going to send to him than he is about your soul and what's going to happen, or that is more concerned about his prosperity in this life than he is in eternity beyond. Because many times there are many that would tag themselves and call themselves God's evangelist. But as we look into the Scriptures, may I say, first of all, that an evangelist is one that is specially or particularly gifted to be able to proclaim the gospel to unbelievers. Though the term is used only two other places in the entire Word of God besides the one that we have before us, the Bible leaves us in absolutely no doubt as to what an evangelist is, what his gifting is, and what that work is to be accomplished through him. We find that it's always great to be able to give illustrations, to give us understanding, but the illustrations that I like the best, I mean, we can look at history. And there's everybody here this morning, if you've had any Thing to do with the church at all, that you would recognize the names of some of the evangelists that God has used in bygone years. We find that if I mention names like D.L. Moody, most every Christian that has read anything would have heard that name or read about it somewhere because of what God accomplished through him through his gift of evangelizing. And I want you to turn with me in the Scripture because I love it when the Bible itself gives us the clear illustrations. Look, if you would, into Acts chapter 21 and in verse 8. The Bible says, And the next day we that were of Paul's company, this is Paul, the companions that are traveling with him here, the next day we that were of Paul's company departed, and came unto Caesarea. And we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, 
which was one of the seven, and abode with him. The only man in Scripture that God himself calls an evangelist. Now, he's not the only evangelist that we find there. But the Bible particularly calls this one Philip the evangelist. Now, it says he was one of the seven. What is he talking about there? He's talking about that he was one of those that was chosen back in Acts chapter 6 to serve the church at Jerusalem as a deacon. We find that if you look back with me into Acts chapter 8, you'll find that his duties in serving as a deacon were pretty short-lived. He was appointed in chapter 6. We find in chapter 7 the great persecution of, of Stephen, another one of the seven. But notice here as we pick up in Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, it says, And Saul, the first time we see him in Scripture, was consenting unto his death, unto the death of Stephen. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. Remember, that's where they'd been appointed deacons. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad, which is all the church of Jerusalem except the apostles, it said, therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip, there he is, Philip the deacon. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and what did he do in Samaria? And preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. Philip, first chosen out of the church at Jerusalem to serve the church as a deacon within that church. But not long after that, great persecutions came upon that church and everybody was literally scattered out of the city with nobody left there but the apostles. Now here we find Philip. After they were scattered, we find him in Samaria. And what is he doing in Samaria? Preaching Christ unto them. Notice what it says down in verse 12 and 13. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also, Simon the sorcerer, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. We find that people began to be saved because of the preaching of Christ of this man named Philip. Simon the sorcerer, 
He's one of those that believe. And of course, you can read through there and you find that where Simon tries to buy that power to be able to do the things that these others were doing. But notice down in verse 25, and they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Everywhere we find Philip going, he's preaching Christ. He's preaching the gospel. So now he's returned to Jerusalem. But poor God, God doesn't let him hang around there very long either. Notice what it says in the next verse. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went and behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority, under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near, and join thyself to this chariot. Now I want you to notice, God has sent him to cities and villages as a whole preaching the gospel. Here, God is sending him to one single individual. That one individual meant enough to God that he was willing to take this one that is gifted particularly to be able to present the gospel to people, and he sends him to this eunuch. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Esaias and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, how can I, except some man should guide me? I, I'm reading this out of, out of Isaiah, but I, I don't really understand everything that I'm reading. How can I understand this unless somebody is willing to show me the way? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the Scripture which he read was this. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, Isaiah said, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? Notice the next verse, folks. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same Scripture and what? Preached unto him, Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were coming up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. God directed and used Philip specifically to preach Jesus Christ to this Ethiopian eunuch and to bring him to salvation that he might know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And then notice 
in verse 40. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Here's Philip. After leaving the eunuch, the next place he's found is in Azotus. And the Bible says that he preached in all the cities that he went through until he came to Caesarea. Now, we can only assume from that point that following the persecutions that took place in Jerusalem, when the church was scattered abroad, it must have been Caesarea that Philip and his family had made their home, though he spent very little time there because he's been out preaching the gospel. We find that though he's preaching all over the place, after the close of chapter 8 here, we don't have mention of this one called Philip again until we get to our passage in chapter 21. And that's probably about 25 years later that Paul and his companions, remember, <laughs> the first place we see Paul is there when the great persecutions are taking place in chapter 8 at the same point that literally because of Saul that this one called Philip was run out of town. He was scattered abroad. 25 years later, of course, after the conversion of Saul, and he's now the Apostle Paul, we find the Apostle Paul and his companions in the house of Philip the Evangelist. As we read about this man and we see all that has taken place there, the simple truth is, Every place you find him, wherever he's at, his focus is upon one thing, preaching the gospel. That was a gift. God had gifted this man specifically, and God himself was the one that called him an evangelist. You see, an evangelist is important to the church. Every child of God, has a responsibility to be a witness, to let Jesus Christ shine in their lives, to give the gospel to every human being upon the face of the earth. It's not just that the evangelist is the only one that has that duty. It's just that there are those that have a special gifting and calling upon their life to perform the duties of an evangelist. And God gives those evangelists to our church. We've got the privilege of having an evangelist in our church with us here at Bethel, a gift to our church. I can remember Brother Steve's heart from the first time that I met him. He loved. He loved being able to be out there on the streets and to preach the gospel and to give the gospel to people. We've seen that in his life all these years. He acknowledged his calling to the ministry, and we as a church have, have licensed him into that ministry, recognizing that gift that is upon his life. That doesn't mean that Steve is the only one that's responsible to be out there on outreach, that he's the only one that's responsible to be speaking in the nursing homes, that he's the only one that's responsible to be out there 
telling people about Jesus as he's out there even on his delivery truck during the weeks. We all have the responsibility in all of those areas. But Steve has been given a special gift and a special calling upon his life to be an evangelist. We as a church are privileged for God to have given us that gift for the working of this body as a whole. Everybody doesn't get the same gifts. To some, he gave apostles. To some, he gave prophets. To some, he gave evangelists. Notice next, and to some, he gave pastors and teachers. And to some, he gave pastors and teachers. Teachers really doesn't need a whole lot of explaining. <laughs> there are very few here yet that have not uh, reached school age that knows what a teacher does for them. If you're not in school, you've had it somewhere in your past that you've had teachers. Many of you have already been here in the earlier meeting this morning when we've had teachers with different age groups that have been teaching the Word of God during our Sunday school and our Bible study. A teacher isn't hard to understand. But what's different here about and some pastors and teachers? Well, just as the evangelist is not just anybody that has that responsibility, for we all have the responsibility to evangelize. Do you know that every child of God also has the responsibility to teach? Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you is the way the Lord Jesus Christ put it in His commission to us. But here we find that Again, this is an individual that has been particularly gifted. And in fact, in its context here, we see it and some pastors and teachers. But in fact, in its context, you could say teaching pastors. Teaching pastors. You see, the two terms are described, uh, this one office of leadership within the church the word and there in your Bible could also bring the idea of in particular. In other words, he gave some pastors and in particular teachers. Pastors that are particularly gifted at teaching God's Word. The word pastor, in its purest sense, it simply means a shepherd. We sometimes refer to the pastors, the gift that God has given to the church as under-shepherds. The reason for that is if you look in Hebrews chapter 13 and in verse 20, we find that Jesus Christ himself is referred to as the great shepherd he says, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that 
great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Jesus Christ himself is the great shepherd. If you notice Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 and in verse 25, he says, For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd, capital S, and bishop, capital B, of your souls. Jesus Christ, the great shepherd, the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Of course, bishop simply would mean an overseer. Just as there is only one Jesus that is called both shepherd and bishop, the same is true of the under-shepherd that God gives to his body. There are actually three words in Scripture that all speak of the same office. Pastor, bishop, and elder. All the same office, but three different aspects of the duties. But regardless of which of those titles are used, we see time and time and time again the importance placed upon it of that pastor, of that elder, of that bishop teaching God's people. Turn with me, if you would, to Titus chapter 1. In Titus chapter 1, notice what the Bible says beginning with verse 5. He says, for this cause, Paul writing to Titus, for this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee, if any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly. What was he called up there in verse 5? An elder. Notice in verse 7, 4, a bishop speaking of the same person must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, money, riches, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate. Notice what he says in verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine, sound teachings, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Why? For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, the Cretans are 
always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. And you can continue on reading of the purity. The importance is that we see here. This gift that is given to the church, this teaching pastor, this elder, this bishop, the responsibility, the importance of teaching sound doctrine, of pointing out that which is wrong, of rebuking those who are wrong. The qualifications morally and of their character that if somebody is not doing the teaching right, then those that are teaching falsely are going to have the upper hand. The importance, why that teaching is so important. You turn back just a few pages in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We find here the Apostle Paul writing to young Timothy and he says, beginning in verse 1, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality. What are the next three words in there? Apt to teach. Not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy luger, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil." We find that this term pastor, bishop, elder, an elder could be spoke of in terms of just speaking of one that is older, one that is more mature. But in the sense of the office of pastor, bishop, or elder, this gift, this spiritual gift, given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ, given to the church. He's not speaking here on the basis of natural abilities. He's not speaking of the intelligence. He's not speaking of the education. May I say with all due respect, there are too many pulpits filled today that are based upon those natural qualifications that man can get for himself when what the church really needs is a man that is a gift of the Spirit that is given to them by the Lord Jesus Christ. All the education in the world, all the intelligence in the world, yes, everybody should be everything that they possibly can be for the Lord. But may I say, You'd be far better off to have a country preacher from out in the boondocks 
that never had even the opportunity of the education that most of us here today have had. You would be far better off as a church to have that man that was called of God and gifted of God and placed there by God to perform the duties of a pastor, of an elder, of a bishop, than to have all the education and intelligence in the world and not have God's hand upon him. So many times we're so quick to judge on the natural abilities and attainments. That's not the way God works. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, you know, that he uses the base things, the simple things. He uses the foolish things to confound the wise. We don't always understand. We can even look around sometimes and we can look and we say, boy, that person would make a great preacher. That person could really be used in the ministry. And maybe we see some of those giftings and maybe, just maybe, it is a gift that's been placed upon their lives and it's visible by those around. But if we're looking and saying, he'd make a good preacher, he'd make a good pastor, he'd make a good evangelist, whatever, solely because that he has the credentials of the world. And folks, he might be the worst one in the world. <laughs> he might even be able to get up and put on a good show. But that's not what the Word of God is speaking of here. You see, the church needs God's man. That is a gift from him, a spiritual gift from him. And yes, based upon moral and spiritual character that is clearly spelled out here in the Word of God. But that one that is sovereignly enabled, that is enabled by God himself, that is empowered through the Holy Spirit, that God can speak what he chooses to speak. The awesome responsibility of the office. He says to desire the office of a bishop is to desire a good thing. It's a great privilege. But the simple truth is, is that just like everything else that we can get involved with, with the Holy God. It is only by God's grace. And it is only when God himself is in control and doing that work. You look back into the book of Acts again in chapter 20. Notice we find here a bit of the awesomeness of the responsibility that is placed there in Acts chapter 20 beginning in verse 17. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, and notice, and called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, You know from the first day that I came unto Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mine and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews, 
how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Now behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I am not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Notice what he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember, by the space of three years I ceased not to warn every one night and day with tears. You see, as the Apostle Paul is addressing the elders of this church, and he is addressing using himself as an illustration of the ministry that he himself has had amongst them, he gives a bit of an idea of the bishop, the elder, the pastor, the responsibilities of all that come into it. You know, the shepherd's there to nurture and to protect the lambs. The bishop is there as an overseer with the responsibility. The elder, that one that God has blessed to have the maturity of leadership amongst them. He says, your responsibility is going to be great because the wolves are going to try to get at the sheep. The wolves are trying to get there. And you know, it's amazing. It's amazing the ways that he can try to get in amongst the sheep. And we'll find as we move on, we're not going to have time this morning. I want to give you one other passage in closing this morning. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter speaking of this same thing, 1 Peter chapter 5, notice what he says beginning in verse 1. He says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, 
you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. You see, we find that just like in any of our gifts that we use that we've seen before, if we try to use the gifts selfishly for ourselves, they're going to gain absolutely nothing for us. The gifts are always there to be used for the benefits of others. But you know, you, you can't outgive God. <laughs> and the truth is, you know, that the way that you'll receive the greatest blessing from God in your own life by using your gift to the fullest. We'll see as we look on through this chapter. I mean, we made it through a half a verse this morning, but we'll see as we look on. We'll see the importance that when God uses each one to use just what God has given to you, it's then that the church will be strong from within, that the church will increase, that the church will be stronger. You see, the more that you're giving to the body, the stronger the body's going to be that's going to give back to you. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. You know, one of the great problems today, so often we don't see these things as gifts from God. So many times one of the biggest mistakes that a church can ever make is in spend, spending more time trying to track down the natural abilities of a man that they're calling to be their pastor than by spending the time on their face before God to find out who it is that God wants to put there. Remember, we're talking about spiritual gifts. These gifts here are individuals, people, given with specific God-given enablements. He gives gifts to people, and he gives people his gifts. These people he gives to the church's gifts are people that are themselves gifted by the Holy Spirit. They are enabled by him. They are empowered by him for specific ministry within the body and for the body as a whole. Why? Does God give these gifts to the church? What are the importance of them? God willing, that's where we'll pick up next Sunday in verse 12. He tells us exactly why. What we need to understand today is that with all the garbage, and that's the only thing I know to call it, the garbage that is often taught concerning the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and the gifts of the Spirit. I'm saying, folks, go to God's Word. Understand what God means by giving us spiritual gifts and what they're for. And we base it not upon our experiences and our feelings, but upon His Word. We all, we all have been gifted in some way to be a part of the body. Now, the entire body of Christ will never be together until the day of the rapture, praise God, which may be soon, and there'll be that one. But right now, God has blessed us right here. This church, 
This church is the body of Christ. Jesus Christ is our head. And God has gifted this body with spiritual gifts individually that we've looked at, and he's gifted us as a whole. The real question comes down to what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do with those gifts? You see, on the one hand, I, I tell you, I, I struggle sometimes when I'm sitting and I'm studying and I'm putting these thoughts together. I'm thinking, wow, you know, I want to have a shouting spell just sitting there looking at what God wants to do, what God can do in our lives, in our church. But it's going to start individually. It's going to start within each and every heart. Every revival begins in one heart somewhere, and it spreads from that. What God can do with your life is beyond even your imagination. What God can do with this church is beyond anything that we can even begin to imagine or comprehend. Father, we thank you this morning for this time that we've had to look into your word. Father, we pray that you would just help us, Lord, as we look at these things. Give us an understanding. Help us to understand the basis that, Lord, these things are based upon in your word. I pray today that you would speak to the hearts of each one. Lord, you know exactly who and what you need to speak here this morning. I would pray earnestly, Lord, if there's one here today that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, Oh, I pray that you'd help them to see that, to understand that, Lord, that we'd have opportunity to take God's Word and show them how they can leave here today as one of your children. And I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to every Christian, embolden them, show them, Lord, the possibilities, the potentials that is there of what you will do through them if you truly have control of their lives, Lord, what you'll do through this church if you truly have control of it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.